Starting an internet business is harder than it should be. You need to incorporate, create an operating agreement, set up a system to accept payments, and many other seemingly straightforward tasks. In the 1990s, this was how it felt to set up anything on the internet. You always had to stand up a web server on your own infrastructure before you could get to the interesting part, which was building an actual product. But the popularization of cloud computing made it easier to stand up a server. Because of that lower activation energy, millions of applications and thousands of software businesses got started. But the activation energy required to start the business remains higher than necessary. It feels like standing up a web server in the 90s. There's lots of tedium and reinventing the wheel that has been done by people before you. This is the motivation behind Stripe Atlas, which is a project to simplify the process of starting an internet business. Patrick McKenzie works on Atlas at Stripe. He was previously on the show to discuss his experience building a small software company or a series of small software companies after leaving a large corporation. And his name has become synonymous with the modern phenomenon of the small software entrepreneur. He has been writing about this topic for over a decade at calzumius.com. It was great to talk to Patrick once again about internet businesses, and I'm excited to see Stripe Atlas become something huge. We've done four other shows about Stripe, as well as other financial technology like blockchains and automated trading. If you're looking for all 700 episodes of Software Engineering Daily, you can check out our apps on the iOS or Android app stores. You can listen to all of our episodes at softwaredaily.com. And you can find all of our episodes without ads. If you become a paid subscriber, if you're interested in subscribing, you can do that at softwaredaily.com. Thanks for listening, and let's get on with the episode. Patrick McKenzie, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. You work on Stripe Atlas. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Last time we spoke, we were talking about starting small internet businesses, of which you have began several in the past. You were just starting to work on Stripe Atlas at the last conversation we had. Give the listeners an overview of your business background. How'd you wind up at Stripe? Sure. So I usually start where I had graduated college and moved to Japan with the idea that I was going to get better at business Japanese and then uh, get a job in the U.S. software industry in a Japan-facing role at a place like Microsoft. I had it written out and uh, stamped on my wall. I wanted to be the product manager of MSXL Japanese version. That was my terminal career goal. And then uh, life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. Worked at a Japanese organization for a few years and uh, got little tired of working at a traditionally managed Japanese company. And uh, during my nights and weekends, first I ran a World of Warcraft guild, and then I decided to do something with less dragons and better loot and start a software business. So I built a company called Bingo Card Creator, which made bingo cards for elementary school teachers. And uh, it was originally just like strictly a hobby to take up the time that had been used by WoW, but eventually grew into something that was much more than a hobby. I was making, I remember the exact day, it would have been in uh, late 2009, where I was crunching very hard at the day job and had worked 19-hour day, checked into a hotel to sleep for four or five hours before I had to get go to work the next day. And I woke up in the morning and checked my email on a Kindle, uh, as I was doing back in those days. And I had gotten enough PayPal, you've got money notifications overnight to tell me that I had made more money while sleeping than when working the 19-hour day previous to that. And it was like, dear me, what am I doing? Um, so that was 
That was probably the exact minute at which I knew that I was quitting the day job, so that was good. Um, I quit the day job. I spent the next couple of years uh, doing a combination of, I built a software consultancy that was mostly helping out other SaaS companies with uh, marketing and sales, which seems to be the, the thing that I have a comparative advantage on versus most uh, people who work in software. Um, at the same time, I was building up appoint- Appointment Reminder, which was a SaaS business, which did uh, appointments, well, appointment reminders. I'm terrible at naming things. Uh, automated SMS, phone, and uh, email reminders to the clients of professional services businesses. So for example, if you have a doctor appointment at two o'clock, you would get a a call at 8.30 a.m. that morning saying, are you coming to the doctors? If so, press 1. If not, press 5. And uh, if you needed to cancel the appointment appointment on short notice, we could uh, have a phone automatically call up the doctor's uh, receptionist and get them to uh, rebook that slot so that uh, they don't lose revenue that they can never get back when they lose uh, service provider time. And so I uh, ran that business. Let's see, I sold Bingo Card Creator and started in 2006, sold it in 2015, Sold Appointment Reminder in 2016, consulted actively for a number of the years in there. And uh, I did a company called Starfighter in 2015 and 16, which didn't end up working out. Um, this was with two of my uh, friends as co-founders, uh, Thomas Tachuk and Aaron Tachuk. I had this idea that we could uh, make engineering hiring transformatively better by building a game that people could play for no reason at all. Uh, and the game would uh, uh, give you hard engineering problems that you would solve by programming. And we would take a look at the the folks who did well playing the game and say, you know, clearly you're very good at this. Uh, if you're happy doing what you're doing, that's awesome. But if you're not happy doing what you're doing professionally, uh, perhaps we could introduce you to a firm that could make better use of your services. And uh, if one of our clients took a, a introduction to one of our players and uh, successfully hired them, we would get a contingency recruiter fee out of that. And sadly, that for a variety of reasons, that didn't end up working out. That was a bellwether of a lot of different hiring companies that did end up working out. So you were at least going in the right direction with that company. Yeah, I think the the core hypothesis we had for it was substantially accurate. Um, Hiring in engineering is still broken. It's still a multi-gazillion dollar uh, business if someone uh, does it correctly. I think our fundamental approach was pretty sound to it, but a combination of spending a little too much time on the development versus the uh, getting it out into the market and some other issues that are probably a little outside the scope of this podcast. Yeah, right. Contributed to that particular version not working. I think people at this point can understand why you ended up working on Atlas, because you were tinkering on these niche business ideas before the small software business idea became more popularized, before the indie hackers movement, and before people started realizing how much money there could be in these niche SaaS businesses. So there's there's a variety of, of internet business types, and most of the, the coverage goes to these venture-backed startups, uh, but there's also small businesses like Amazon sellers. People have built entire companies around selling things on Amazon, and then maybe they have small software products that are linked into those. And then there are the indie hacker type of businesses, which it's been awesome to see Cortland shed more light on. But there's really a large gradation of these these software businesses. And everyone knows that figuring out a business model and building a product is difficult, but there really is a, a wide range of markets and market sizes to go after. But I think what we're, what we're going to get to today is a discussion of why it's still so hard to set up a business. So what people may not know is that setting up a business, like legally, doing the legal incorporation, issuing shares, that process is actually difficult. 
I wouldn't say it's as difficult as finding a business model and building out a product, but it is not the kind of thing that should be difficult at all, because in that case, there's nothing technologically complex going on. There shouldn't be anything strategically complex going on. This stuff should just be worked out. It should be taken care of for you. And yet it's still as hard as spinning up a server in the 90s when you had to figure out load balancers and like it was hard to configure your database and all these other things that were way harder than they needed to be. Why are we still at this point today where spinning up a small business or a large business, of course, is way harder than it needs to be? I think you can think about uh, the technology of operating a business in similar fashion to the uh, technology of operating technology, to coin a phrase. We're in the tail end of the pre-OSS moment, moment right now, where in like the first generation of internet businesses, it's like, you want to sell something online? Great. Step number one, write a web server in C++. And that was a really rough, rough place to be in. Not because writing a web server is the most complicated program that you could possibly write, but because it is a relatively complicated program and it gates everything else that you want to do. And so the part of the Cambrian explosion that we've seen in online software businesses and online businesses of all types has been enabled by OSS and by other platforms like, say, Amazon Web Services and the availability of other OSS that's available uh, sorry, not OSS, uh, services that are available with a relatively low barrier to entry, including OSS, and that allows people to focus less of their energy on just getting the infrastructure working and more of their energy on actually producing the business value and uh, getting that in the hands of customers. And so to your point, like writing the operating agreement for an LLC shouldn't be a earth-shattering novel work of creation. Uh, but historically, the, the way the regulatory system works and the legal system works is that they assume that essentially all work like that is bespoke and done every time by uh, relatively highly priced professionals. And it's uh, not something that is uh, just you know perfected and tweaked and then uh, reused off the shelf. And so what we're trying to do on Atlas is to take the, uh, the infrastructure of building businesses and make it more like OSS as such that a company that is starting up can say, look, um, you know, I want a plain vanilla Delaware C Corp, the sort of thing that an investor can look at and say, yep, I would invest in that. And just have that ready to go at the click of a button, just like you can have a Ubuntu image ready to go at the click of a button on AWS. Uh, and so you can spend less of your scarce entrepreneurial bandwidth, the stuff that doesn't add value, like your articles of incorporation for a company, something that I know lawyers, I love some lawyers, and they, they will tell you that your articles of incorporation are very important. That's probably true, but they're probably not a source of a huge amount of marginal importance uh, contingent on you getting one that is uh, functional. So have an easy way to get one that is functional and then spend your entrepreneurial bandwidth budget and your risk budget and your you know unique decisions budget in places that uniquely create value for your customers. Right, because once you find product market fit then it's fine. Like Spend time and money on lawyers, get your operating agreement revamped, get your articles of incorporation revamped as necessary. But until then, those things are not worth spending time that people often end up spending on them. They end up engaging with lawyers and accountants and reinventing the wheel in places where it's not necessary. Now, of course, there are going to be naysayers, to this argument because, you know, by lowering the barrier to entry for, let's take cryptocurrencies for an example. So we're seeing some serious downsides to the barrier to entry being lowered for issuing security. We had the ICO craze 
that made it easy for people to create scams that look like serious operations. You know, people took it seriously, this idea that, oh, this is a security that has been issued and I can buy it on this sketchy exchange. And so I'm not drawing a direct comparison to issuing a coin and getting your articles of incorporation drafted, but I'm trying to raise the devil's advocacy of are there good reasons why it is not extremely easy to set up a C corporation? Uh, well, there's a spectrum of things here. Let's say it's, there's a very little good reasoning at, that it is hard to set up a C corporation as a legitimate entrepreneur or you have a business like all startups, there might be a certain amount of risk involved, but uh, that you're fundamentally going to make a go of it. Uh, it's just purely a, a tax on your time and attention. There's like the the hoop jumping barriers that uh, that are between you and having a company set up are not really for the benefit of protecting the public from you. Uh, they're like Delaware doesn't do a review process and say, okay, you you've uh, convinced us that uh, uh, that you are on the level and we will award you with a C corporation. They'll give one to literally anybody who fills out the correct paperwork. Um, it's just that figuring out what the correct paperwork is is harder than it needs to be. And so democratizing the, the technology of uh, producing the correct paperwork in a time-efficient fashion and saving your lawyer cycles for places where the lawyer can uniquely uh, help you to avoid uh, legitimate risks to the business uh, just enables people to produce value-producing companies better. So what kinds of paperwork does a new corporation need to fill out to get set up? What are you trying to automate with Stripe Atlas? Take me through the different things that you needed to automate to get the MVP of Stripe Atlas up and running? Sure. So I guess the first thing to point out is that there's a garden of branching paths in attempting to create any sort of company. And there's a lot of decisions that you have to make. And as an entrepreneur who might know how to uh, get a web application working, but probably doesn't have an MBA, uh, a lot of the decisions are highly non-trivial. So for example, do you want a C corporation versus an LLC? Given that you want a C corporation, do you want to incorporate in Delaware or your uh, home state or some third state? So part of the part of what we did is we just were able to make some opinionated choices. And if you are building a C corporation, you should just build it in Delaware rather than looking at the other 50 jurisdictions that uh, could uh, incorporate a C corporation within the United States. And there are some uh, reasons to go into that, which uh, can and can't go into a huge amount of detail. Uh, the long story short is that a Delaware C corporation is adequate to almost all purposes that you would put a C corporation through. And uh, that's given that uh, corporations in various states are more or less fungible for each other for most purposes, but that investors are much more comfortable in investing in Delaware C corporations for boring legal reasons. It's easiest to just go with the one that uh, preserves a lot of optionality for you in the future. Also, it's a way to signal to entrepreneurs, you will have so many consequential decisions over the next five years of your life. And the, the state that you incorporate in is not one of those consequential decisions that is going to determine whether this business is going to be successful or not. And therefore, don't spend all that much time thinking about it. Like, Just go with the sensible defaults, and uh, that will take you as far as you need to go on this part of the decision. And spend your, your energy and your brain sweat on harder questions like, who should my co-founder be? Or uh, what market should we go after? What marketing approaches are we going to uh, use in the next six weeks to close some deals, et cetera? Yeah, so my personal experience with this is, you know, you could set up a C corporation, you could set up an LLC, you could set up an S corporation, you could set up a B corporation, but for the most part, early on, you're not going to even care which one of these you're setting up because probably your business has not even 
gotten off the ground yet, you're probably not wildly profitable. And many of the trade-offs between these designations have to do with how cash flows propagate from the organization to the holders of equity within the organization. And none of that really matters if you don't have cash flows from the beginning. So you might as well just check the box that gives you the optionality to configure how those cash flows get directed later on in the future and at least sets up the the organization for for the lowest barrier to entry to fundraising cuz most likely your business is not i mean if we're just talking about the raw population distribution of how companies work out you're probably not going to have a wildly profitable business and you're either going to fail or you're going to need to raise money which makes sense to configure it as a c corporation i think that one of the infelicities about how corporations have historically worked is that you sort of need to uh, be able to predict the future like uh, if you know that you're going to take investment as of day one then clearly you should be a c corporation Um, and then if you think that you will never take investment and you will never have more than one owner, uh, then there is probably a fairly good case for you being an LLC. But you need to know that on day one. uh, And that's relatively difficult. We've got some stuff coming down the pipe, which will hopefully allow people to maintain more of the optionality uh, with regards to what their corporate form is. But uh, listen to this space in the near future, or rather in this space, stripe.com slash atlas. That being said, there are some differences in the, the various entity types. One of the things that we do is we try to educate people on the difference between the various entity types so that you can uh, make a good enough for you right now decision without having to uh, spend a lot of time with lawyers and accountants applying their specialized knowledge to a question that doesn't really require all that much specialized advice to get right. There are a lot of products at Stripe where engineering is complex. So the Stripe anti-fraud system, for example, that seems like an engineering challenge. Atlas, to me, looks like more of a challenge around customer service, product management, integrations, regulatory compliance. It's not as much about really hard engineering problems as it is about diplomacy and building a relationship with your integration partners, like accountants and lawyer-based services is that accurate? Is that your because you're kind of in charge of the Atlas project? Is that your experience? I'm not formally in charge of the Atlas project. Uh, I work on the team, like many smart people work on the team. Uh, the manager of it is a gentleman named Taylor, and then we have uh, Alex who does the engineering management. But uh, be that as it may, I think there's some hard producty kind of decisions on uh, how do you take a user who might not have a huge amount of background uh, understanding of like what the issues are at play and get them through an incorporation of a, a full, real, honest to god company in a fashion where they understand everything that's going on on uh, their behalf and that they feel comfortable doing it. Uh, and some of that is a is uh, from design, some of that is from uh, good product decisions. But you're right, it does not, you know, processing on terabytes of data every night so that you can do X thousands of transactions per second uh, through a machine learning network. That's not the nature of the challenges we have on Atlas. Today. Um, Today, you know, there's, you can imagine all sorts of weird things that could happen as time goes to infinity. Uh, but there are substantial amounts of, uh, of uh, engineering, not as it is normally understood with regards to how do we route users to experts in, their, uh, in the fields that they need right now? Uh, how do we handle a customer support for users in uh, like 
the expectation among their users for Atlas is that they can come to us with any question under the sun about our, uh, their businesses, and we will do our level best to answer that uh, if we're possibly capable of answering it. Like We're not a legal firm. We can't provide legal advice. We're not an accounting firm. We can't provide accounting advice. But if you uh, say, hey, I'm working on an investor pitch. Uh, can you help me with that? Our default answer to that is yes, we would be happy to help, help you on your investor pitch. And uh, that's a that's a different flavor of customer uh, service than we've traditionally offered at Stripe, where you know usually it's like, okay, we're we're super comfortable uh, helping you through like your API integration, but it's not like we have an existing process that says, all right, take flawed investor pitch, apply transformation to it, and get a better investor pitch. So we've been uh, sort of building up those muscles over the last uh, year, two years, and it's been a uh, very interesting thing to work on. Well, this is what I love about Atlas is it's like you put paper mache around around something that is deeply complicated and it's not like you're fixing it with engineering quite yet i mean you you're fixing fixing it with internal organizational processes like stripe is a well-run organization so that you can it stripe is built to be able to handle edge cases and complex customer service issues because of the way the culture has developed so atlas is is the perfect type of product to develop because you can just paper over a highly complex and unstructured problem by just putting smart people uh, in the middle. And then over time, the smart people can talk about, okay, here's the thing we're finding comes up over and over and over again. Let's build an automated product around it. So I think the thing that you'll hear over and over again in project management, uh, whether you're at a company like Stripe or whether you're just starting out, is do things that don't scale to start out so that you can learn about the problem domain. So back in the day, there was relatively little engineering in Atlas at all. It was a uh, form that would add your information into a database, and then uh, there would be actual people at Stripe like pushing buttons on a fax machine to get you incorporated. And we're substantially more automated these days, but uh, uh, sort of like seeing what the process looked like on a uh, sort of artisanal scale and then uh, paving the cow paths uh, was a core way that got us to where we are uh, right now. And uh, we have a team of you know a dozen or so smart people working on Atlas every day, and we uh, run into a certain amount of uh, uh, issues which are present over a large portion of our user base and which are relatively repetitive for us. And sometimes we handle those by just rolling up our sleeves and applying lots of elbow grease. And then uh, sometimes after applying the elbow grease for a few times, it's like, okay, uh, where can we make intelligent intelligent investments on the engineering side to uh, solve this in a more scalable fashion such that we can spend our elbow grease new issues? So there's all this required legal and accounting and business knowledge for building Atlas. And by the way, I think we've put the emphasis on on the legal side of things, but Atlas also, in the process of signing up, you get a bank account. And you get integrated with Stripe, and uh, like I have a, a a business that I use with Atlas. And when tax season was coming up, Atlas was notifying me, "Hey, you need to file your taxes, and here are some ways where we can potentially help you." So, accounting mm-hmm. is is a we're, core competence. Yeah, we're happy to uh, introduce folks to accounting firms that are uh, appropriate for the stage that their business is at, and to. Uh, I have them use those accounting firms to file their taxes. One of the perennial issues for us is that uh, we are not ourselves lawyers and we are not ourselves accountants, so we can't give accounting or legal advice directly, but we can give uh, information to people and give them the pointers in the right direction, both in terms of like specific firms that they could engage on their behalf or 
additional things to to research such that they can handle their situation for themselves. There's some, some froth in this space. So there's fa- like founders, you now have access to things like UpCounsel, which is Uber for lawyers. There's also Uber for accountant type services where you can find an accountant on demand. I have had mixed experiences with these things. Sometimes I get really good value out of them. Other times I waste so much time and money. And I just say to myself, I wish I would have gone to an actual lawyer or an actual accountant. It seems less clear to me that these services are the right solutions in contrast to something like TaskRabbit or Uber where there is more fungibility to the market. Is that your experience as well with these like Uber for lawyers, Uber for accountants? Well, we do partner with UpCounsel. And, uh, and, and by the uh, way, I, I love UpCounsel. I've, I've had very good experiences with UpCounsel. I've maybe had some one bad, one marginal experience. But yeah, just a caveat, I do love UpCounsel up in general. Oh, awesome. Glad to hear that they've worked out well for you. Broadly speaking, I think that any sort of uh, service which encapsulates like an underlying professional that's providing the service has an issue with scoping. And so, for example, the... The scope of service provided by Uber is uh, fairly easy to understand. You're at point A, you want to go to point B, uh, you don't want to die in the middle. And uh, any person that can uh, can execute on that, well, will largely execute to first approximation as well as anyone else executing on it. And that's not true of uh, the vast field that could be law. And, you know, law is like there's a fractal nature to it where uh, there is infinite variability. And then if you zoom in on any like particular subfield, there's infinite variability within that subfield. Part of the nature of Atlas is that if you can't make law less complex than law is, can you constrain the nature of the problem space such that uh, any provider that you tap is always looking at a more constrained problem? So one of the ways that we constrain this is by uh, saying, okay, uh, Atlas C corporations will invariably be Delaware uh, C corporations, and they will invariably be uh, using this paperwork that we've provided for them. And so you don't have the, the point with a lawyer of, all right, try to go from the entire universe of world states that a company could possibly be in uh, to select down to the one they're actually in and then start the practice of law. It's, say, okay, we can prepare you with regards to all the companies you do business with from Atlas. They will be in this particular state. Start from from that foreknowledge of where the problem is going to be. And hopefully that makes things uh, more efficient for uh, the service provider and also better for the user in that they don't have to redundantly explain their situation to the lawyer and their accountant and every other uh, service that they integrate with. So tell me more about how product development works within Atlas. I know maybe you can't comment specifically on what is being built right now, but it sounds like this this process of of having fax machines and doing everything manually and then figuring out what to automate is a core competency there. But how is there anything else interesting you can comment on about how the product development process works broadly? Part of it looks a lot like uh, product development at any company. We spend a lot of time talking to our users. Uh, both with regards to uh, inbound require, uh, requests from them uh, to our user operations team and also proactively just reaching out and saying, hey, what, what's working in your business uh, right now? What are your core challenges? Uh, what do you feel like you could be helped on that you're not getting helped on? Then we attempt to uh, do experiments that prove out that we could be useful with regards to particular things. An example of this is an advantage of just having smart people around that are dedicated to helping our uh, our customers out. We 
knew that a lot of customers were looking at trying to get investment uh, for their companies. And we said, okay, well, YC season is coming up. I personally know a little bit about like what YC is looking for in applications. Let's just like, let's do something crazy. We're going to email everybody on Atlas and say, hey, if you want to get YC investment, just hit reply on this email, uh, send us a link to your application and we'll take a look at it for you and uh, uh, maybe help you write it such that your narrative flows a little better. And so I got an arbitrarily large number of people hitting reply on that email and uh, there there was no technology built out, there was no process, there was no triage workflow in Zendesk. Uh, it was just, it went straight to my inbox and uh, and then I worked a little too hard for a little too long uh, getting replies out to everybody and uh, that worked out pretty decently the first time. And then, you know, six months later, we're like, okay, the, the YC thing worked out pretty well for users, but it didn't work out exactly pretty well for me. Can we get a little bit more process around this to uh, like random example? We just told people, yeah, just get us your application. And uh, if you give an unbounded instruction like that to a large group of people who have um, a technical skill that's all over the map, uh, you'll get a surprising variety of far- file formats, including Google Docs. Uh, I copy pasted all my stuff into Markdown and then attached that to the email. Um, my personal favorite. Did you get an EXE? I got iPhone screen grabs of someone's application that was open on their MacBook. It was my personal favorite for attempting to annotate an application. So the second time around, we wised up and we're like, copy your answers into a Google Doc and then share us the Google Doc. And then we uh, can have you know folks on our user operations team uh, verify that the Google Doc is correct prior to uh, sending it to somebody like me to get feedback on uh, and that we we do that sort of thing that allows us to uh, provide the same level of service, but at a uh, like maximize the amount of my time that is spent talking to people about deep issues in their business or about positioning it for the benefit of uh, the YC reviewers, and minimal amount of my time attempting to figure out like, uh, hey, you sent me this file but didn't actually open. Can can I ask that you resend it in uh, MS Word 2017 edition? Yada yada. Yeah. So the scope of what Stripe Atlas could become eventually is quite wide and. I wonder what led you to choose some, something like that that's is kind of bandwidth intensive, like asking people for their YC apps so you can help review them and improve them. That's time consuming. And for all the choices of product development bandwidth you could allocate towards, you went down that path. Is there an overall KPI that you're going towards that... You know, in trying to fulfill that KPI, you were like, oh, if we solicit people for YC applications, that will increase that internal KPI. Or was it just like, eh, I'll just do this on a flyer and see what happens? So when I was running my own software companies, the basic business model was that I was running a vending machine over the internet where I did not want to talk to you. And uh, if I ended up talking to you for a customer service request or something, I treated that as a bug. And older and wiser these days, I think that is not the way to do things. And so sometimes when you're doing things that don't scale, you should be doing things that are bandwidth intensive, specifically because they're bandwidth intensive. Like spending a lot of bandwidth on talking to customers about what their current state of their company is and what their aspirations are for the future on it and how they expect to get to that future is an extraordinarily useful thing to do for customer development for us. So Obviously, we want to provide value from the perspective of uh, materially improving their uh, YC applications, getting them the investment they want, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, uh, it's also an excellent way for us to learn in a very high bandwidth fashion about where our users are right now and what else we should be building for them. And you know, when we have 100 plus conversations with people, we can start picking up on like recurring themes of 
uh, you know, what are the specific, specific problems that someone's having? Uh, what are the industries that people are very interested in? What are the business models they're building out? And make sure that we are building our product in a way that supports those use cases that people uh, seem to want to apply the product hmm. to. What has surprised you in, in this uh, high bandwidth scope of exposure to newer companies? So many things surprise me. There's some unsurprising surprises. So the an unsurprising surprise is the one where if you were to ask someone before they do something, predict the surprises that you're going to say. Uh, you would be able to predict the surprise, but that you would not be able to predict the magnitude of the surprise. So if you were to ask me, you're going to talk to 100 random software companies. Uh, predict the surprising bits about that. I would say, I bet they're going to be a surprising variety of what people are doing to make money on the internet. And that's true. Uh, but then you actually talk to 100 software companies, and no matter what your model is for for how many ways there are to skin a cat, how many ways to create value over the internet, you are underpredicting the diversity of things that people are doing and underpredicting the, the sheer level of creativity that people can bring to uh, what they are creating in the world. Honestly, that's one of my favorite parts of doing this is that we enable folks to do things that are not just new and exciting, but that you couldn't even have predicted of being possible without actually watching someone just go out and do it. And oh my goodness, are people capable of going out and doing it? Um, obviously, for any given cohort of startups, some will work out pretty well, some will work out less well, but uh, the, the companies that are most successful have a surprising level of success. And often, you know, if you have a model for, given what I know about a company on day one, who is going to be the most successful two years in, like we've had the opportunity to walk along with a, a selection of thousands of companies over the first year of their life, two years of their life. And the ones that end up really, really compelling at, at the end of two years are often not the ones that look like, obviously, this will be a compelling business as of uh, the day one. So that's been an And what do you think? What do you think is the X factor there? What's the thing that you don't, that you're not able to predict? Is it, the, is it the, the size of the market that you just didn't realize that, wow, actually, there was a huge market for this company? Or is it the quality of the people that you're unable to audit from just a YC application? I think there's a variety of factors. I continue to think that people are surprising. It might be the short story version of my life, short version story of my life. English, I don't speak it anymore. Sorry, guys. No matter how much trust you have in the ability of people to produce outstanding work, you will occasionally meet folks who exceed every rational expectation and many irrational expectations about the sheer amount of things that they can accomplish within a short amount of time. And short of seeing someone being amazing, I don't have a 100% a uh, accurate algorithm for predicting who will be amazing. Uh, sometimes uh, there's uh, the founder sees something about a business model that you don't. Sometimes it's due to one being underinvested in the space. Like you're not the expert they are, and they, therefore they understand it better than you. Sometimes you have someone come to a, a space with uh, the beginner mind and do something that's totally off the wall from the perspective of uh, what the quote-unquote best practices would be there and succeed wildly. And that's they're both very interesting things to see. That massive productivity where, where people surprise you with how productive and how much value they're able to create in a short amount of time, is that due to the increasing leverage that people get out of software tools? Or do you think it's just people pushing themselves harder? I mean, so I sometimes think just the, the leverage that you can get out of even just like the product suite in AWS is massive. It's and it's, it's like AWS. I think is the most underrated advancement relative to how much value it has provided to the world. It, I, I honestly think that's probably the most underrated advancement in technology. 
AWS is certainly a hugely, hugely important source of leverage for entrepreneurs that are using it, and particularly heavily technical entrepreneurs uh, that are uh, doing things that are ambitious. But even for folks who are running off a single server, I think it's probably the the best solution for getting a single server up and running. Um, I do think that like 2018 is the best year in the history of ever to be running a business, uh, particularly a technology business. But uh, there are massive sources of leverage uh, the internet as a distribution system, the individual channels on the internet, um, everything from Google search to the app store to uh, the YouTube is a probably underrated distribution channel to the networks that are uh, developing between consumers of various services. All of these things are a wind in the sails of anybody who's getting started these days. I think you can get substantially more accomplished as a small team uh, due to the confluence of great hosting platforms like AWS other sorts of infrastructural platforms like Twilio or like knock on wood Stripe, being able to charge people money kind of useful. The uh, And things like OSS technologies, so you're spending the majority of your time building things and actually building things that customers will use rather than building out like web servers or uh, firewall rules or all of the other things that need to be done to have an operational business but don't really surface any sort of unique value to it. And separate from the amounts of leverage that's available, I do think that there are uh, the productivity of people, there's probably some general fa- factor of productivity, but it's probably not the same for a given person across all the possible situations they could be in. I think some f- people have come from backgrounds where they are a cog in a large machine and they just find out that they're uh, not constitutionally well suited to being a cog in a machine and that uh, when they're sort of unleashed and allowed to make their own decisions, uh, that they turn out to be pretty good at making decisions and pretty good about motivating themselves. I think that the larger edifice of industrial capitalism has produced a few technologies for getting productivity out of people like bosses, where like the institution of bosses can be one that is useful for the vast majority of people globally. There are at least some people who don't benefit from having a boss as much as other people do. Uh, and they might, what's the lack, what's the opposite of the word benefit? Uh, their productivity might diminish from having a boss. Whereas if you are able to give them the technology to say, uh, hey, you can run your own company and be as productive as you are capable of being, uh, that they will rise to the occasion. Yeah, give them Google Calendar. Just like have their calendar be their boss. Like I sometimes think about like my Google Calendar is like the scheduler like the uh, operating system scheduler for my life. And it's just like allocating tasks to me to do throughout the day and with variable uh, reliability of executing those tasks. But it does, in some sense, function like a boss. Talking more about small businesses, I know you were at MicroConf somewhat recently and you had some tweets uh, around that time. And I think MicroConf is a real-world manifestation of the state of small internet businesses in in some regard. Tell me about what you saw there and what you felt in the atmosphere around talking to people about their small internet businesses. So MicroConf is sort of my home away from home. Um, One of the things that I think is very important as a a small entrepreneur is to find a group of your people. And when I was living in the middle of nowhere in central Japan, I would get on the uh, bullet train for three hours uh, to go out to Tokyo just to meet a, uh, a community of like-minded entrepreneurs in Tokyo. And I think MicroConf is the single densest population of like-minded small software businesses uh, anywhere in the world. And so we converged on Las Vegas once every year or so and uh, just have a few days of talking shop. Um, everything from 
like micro mechanics of running a business to so uh, hey i'm thinking of doing a drip email campaign for my info products business how should i uh, set that up what's the cadence of emails i should send help me with copywriting through like okay i'm thinking of uh, moving up market in my SaaS business, am I ready to move up market? What should my pricing strategies start to look like? Uh, does this impact how my sales model should uh, work to like, I think that entrepreneurs at MicroConf are disproportionately, they are, they have a good integration of how their business works with the rest of their priorities in life. So everything from how do I protect my family from the emotional ups and downs that are involved in running a business, uh, if that's important to me, to how do I balance the time demands of uh, running this business with my other important priorities, to how do I uh, ensure that there is a career path here such that uh, I'm able to continue growing in my skill set and being feeling the sense of internal validation and uh, excitement about doing this and be as excited in year six as I was in week six. I think that there is a real focus on sustainability and uh, building something that lasts there uh, that the technology industry could use could stand to adopt that DNA a little more broadly and ironically for a community that's heavily focused on family and community and the more important things in life our choice of a wandering hole is Las Vegas because who doesn't think family community permanence righteousness when they hear Las Vegas there are places you can go in Las Vegas that will convincingly give you that illusion yeah, I'm sure there are some folks in Las Vegas who who hit all of those things, but it's a it's a difficult thing to find when one is walking down the strip. I agree with that. Okay, so I know we gotta we gotta wind down. Has working on Atlas made you critical of any aspects of how corporations in the United States are regulated and taxed? My general feeling with regards to regulation and taxation is that, like many small business uh, founders. The numbers don't matter so much. The exact specifics of the regulations don't matter so much. I just want uh, the amount of time that is required to be rather low. I want the amount of certainty with regards to interactions with government to be rather high. And I want the path forward for interaction to be very, very clear. And there exist some regulatory regimes that hit those things. And those are generally positive regulatory regimes to operate under. There exist some regulatory regimes that you know, the amount of uh, interaction directly with the government is rather high. The amount of predictability with regards to those interactions is rather low. And the it feels like one has to spend more of one's time working the system than having the system work generally for oneself. I think there are also some emerging trends in government that are a good thing. The I swear every time a, a paper form is replaced with a web application, which is happening apace in recent years, uh, that's almost invariably a good thing for humanity. It speeds up processing times in most cases, uh, makes it much less likely that random errors will get thrown in the process when someone fumble fingers uh, a thing when they're entering data into the computer and uh, just generally plays better. Like, why would you stand in line for 30 minutes when you can just, you know, file a form at 2 a.m. in the morning or whenever you happen to be working on something and then just have that be done? And so that's kind of nice. Like, random example, I still have the LLC that I have in Nevada, uh, which used to be my consulting company slash info products company. And uh, it has a, a filing obligation in uh, Nevada for use tax every year. And I got an email, uh, rather snail mail from Nevada saying I was delinquent on my filing for use tax and slapped my forehead and opened up the URL in the email and said, okay, the amount of use tax I owe you for last year is zero. Enter. They were like, all right, you're done. I'm like, great. Yeah, all know. right. No need to call an accountant and figure out what the process is. No need to call Nevada and say, hey, can you please international mail me a copy of the form so that I can fill it out and then send it to you and then uh, get an answer in six weeks on whether it was accepted or not. One and done. And more one and done interactions with the government, I think, is a more positive thing. Oh, my God. I know. And this is something I I don't run a very complex business, but 
I still get tons of pieces of mail where it's like a piece of mail from some division of a state organization regarding my business. And I open it up and it's like a lot of text and it takes me a while to figure out what they're trying to tell me. And it all sounds scary. And it seems like I owe a lot of money and I'm not sure what's going on. And then I read it like four more times. I'm like, okay, I understand. Uh, There's nothing to do and I don't owe any money. And the number of times per year when that happens, it's like, I'm wasting a lot of time like reading these physical pieces of mail that are hard to parse. I think that this is one of the opportunities for a company like Atlas, where purely for the things that are experienced by substantially every entrepreneur, we can build technology that would uh, sort of like intercept the need for that mail in some cases. Like, for example, the thing that you have to do for virtually every state if you're incorporated is to keep a registered agent available. A registered agent is basically a specialized uh, DNS record that says, in case of lawsuit, you know, file the papers of, for, for the lawsuit with this person who will be available at any hour during the business day that, that's in the state. And so since most businesses don't get sued every year, um, all they need to do is to maintain their contract with a registered agent and uh, make sure they pay up. But that's a, a 30-minute uh, tax on every company in the economy every year. And we're able to save thousands of hours for Atlas customers just by saying, okay, uh, we will find a registered agent who will provide the services as, if required. And then we'll put a little notification on your dashboard if it, it's time for you to pay them. And then we'll charge the credit card that's uh, normally on file for that. And you don't have to get interrupted with, uh, hey, it's March again, time to time to dig out the number and then uh, call them and swap some paperwork, yada, yada. We will just uh, take care of that for you. Yeah. And then, you know, other things like uh, some other things that come to mind are like notaries or paying franchise tax, for example. Yeah, there's a wide variety of things that please, dear God, take these things away from me <laughs> if you can, yeah. Atlas. We have a tool within Atlas to... Uh, assist users in calculating the Delaware's franchise tax. There's actually two ways to calculate it. And typically, uh, one of the ways is vastly more to the advantage of the company than the other way. And that's like sort of one of the things that you have to know when running a company. But because we can have software calculate both of them in parallel, uh, we can assist users in making the choice that is uh, more beneficial for them. And then kind of like protect your limited amount of entrepreneurial bandwidth. Uh, you, When you figure out over the next 10 years what your company is going to accomplish, it will probably not accomplish a fundamental reevaluation of how Delaware expects to get uh, franchise tax submitted to it. You're probably going to create value in some other fashion. And so you should spend the vast majority of your brain cycles on creating the value rather than uh, working the mechanics of Delaware franchise tax. So we can take that off your plate. Whenever I talk to people about the startups that are exciting to me, Stripe is literally at the top of my list. And a large part of the reason for that is... It seems to me like Stripe has an opportunity to basically be the next Amazon. And and I think the AWS of Stripe is going to be Atlas because you can it's so easy to imagine levering up this basic set of company establishment features into a wider marketplace of offerings that are low margin potentially high margin over time, uh, relationships with networks of service providers, much like AWS has, a marketplace, much like AWS has. Maybe that feels far off today, but it seems like a fairly obvious trajectory to move towards for Atlas. What's the biggest vision for what you think Atlas could become? 
biggest vision for what I think Atlas can become. I'll tell you something that Patrick Austin mentioned to me and uh, attempted to convince me to join Stripe. And immediately after he said the sentence, I, I thought, okay, I'm in. If we execute correctly on this, then we will make entrepreneurship so much easier than it is in the status quo, then you should be able to see the impact of us in global macroeconomic indicators, because entrepreneurship is so entwined with producing growth, not just in the United States, but in countries worldwide. So ultimately, we are unlocking a great deal of potential in the world that is not uh, presently exposed to the best circumstances to achieving its full potential. I think that Amazon is a wonderful, wonderful business and has produced a lot of value uh, for their customers and for the world uh, generally. We have, it's still very, very early days for us. We do execute on something as well. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to hear that uh, some of our customers love what we do and that uh, some people see us as a, a light in the industry. That's great. But I think we have a great deal of humility internally. Uh, one of our company values is we haven't won yet. We are keenly aware of the fact that uh, we need to get much, much better at what we are doing presently. And we probably still have not yet created the things that will be most impactful over the course of the next 10, 20, 100 years. I do think that the company is thinking over timescales like that. Like we're definitely not a quarter-to-quarter range company. There are quarterly goals just like there are anywhere, but we're looking to make an impact on the world over the course of time that it will take to generally make a big sustained impact in the challenges that matter. And having said that, we will not be able to make the size of impact that uh, that we hope to make on just having people like myself working here. So for those of you who are looking for a job, Stripe is hiring across a wide variety of positions, both in engineering and elsewhere. So please take a look at stripe.com slash jobs or drop me an email. I would be happy to chat about uh, potential opportunities. Patrick McKenzie, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great to have you. It's been great to chat. And uh, if I can ever help anyone out, my email address is patio11, P-A-T-I-O-1-1 at stripe.com. And please feel free to reach out to me at any time. You can never waste my time. Wow. 